Welcome back to podcast number six. I'm Larry Casola from AmmoNYC.com, and it has been way too long. Seriously, I've been uh, I've been so busy and just running around and detailing cars and going all over the place and uh, you know filming and blah 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 excuses excuses. It's taken me forever, but I'm back. I'm back in the saddle, as they say. I'm in front of my computer and uh, getting a ton of things done. And I wanted to chat with you guys now. Since the last time I talked to you, man, I've done so much, and I'm going to try to split things up because I want to talk to Mike Musto next week about uh, about going to Pebble Beach. But before that, um, today we'll talk a little bit about some of the work that I did uh, for the amazing uh, Bugatti Veyron where I got to travel around and basically set up the car for uh, all of their, uh, their press events and TV shows and you know drives and, and potential buyers and things of that nature. And they are just... Uh, just a class A company. So we'll talk about them a little bit. And later on, we're going to talk with my really, really close friend, Jonathan Adler, who's in the financial and insurance world. And I wanted to get a perspective from him. Off the record, I talk to him all the time and we rant and rave about cars. And, you know, it's kind of the fun thing. Um, part of me secretly wants to just put a camera up when we have, uh, you know, like a Friday night, you know, guys roundtable you know, pizza or whatever, and we all just talk cars. I'd love to put a camera on that because it'd be pretty interesting because we just go back and forth. But essentially, I've known Jonathan forever. Uh, he knows Mike Musto and Matt Farah and, all, you know, all the all the boys from New York. Crazy uh, good uh, race car driver. Um, not a professional, but nonetheless, uh, he can kick some serious butt. Motorcycle racer, been in this forever. And it's a cool perspective to have somebody talk about the financial aspects of a car, like insurance, not necessarily, hey, go to Geico or whatever, which is great, but more, hey, how do you get track insurance or um, you know, high-performance driving education, sort of uh, what happens if I drive off the track in my brand-new XYZ? Do I, how do I get covered for that? So he talks about that. And then about the evolution of how the value of cars um, sort of have changed. And it, it gets me thinking a whole lot. So he's really... Uh, he's just as nerdy as I am in the uh, racing aspect as well as the financial part, which is kind of cool. So we're going to chat with him a little bit later. But before then, you know, our topic of the day, you know, we kind of pick one thing and chat about it for a little bit. And uh, again, I just like to sort of poke at your brain a little bit and go like, oh, yeah, you know, if you pick one thing up, then all the better. But I forget where I was. I think I think I was doing something for Bugatti and there's a lot of people in the, you know, in the crowd. When, you know, after I do the car, I sort of walk away and just, you know, touch it up. Uh, in between photos or in between, uh, you know, live camera shoots. So like, all right, we're going live in 10 seconds. I got to run away so they don't see me wiping it down like a crazy person. Um, but somewhere in the background, or I don't know what it was, somebody asked me a question that triggered my mind thinking, oh, man, I haven't talked about the myths of the car detailing world, if you will. And you can Google search it, and there's tons of myths out there, and we're going to talk about a lot of them that you can Google search. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the questions somebody asked me is, Hey, you know, is there really a difference between dish ro- dish soap and car soap, which was one of them, and that just opened the floodgate for me of, hey, why don't we just chat about that quickly? And we'll we'll I'll hit ten or twelve. I don't even know how many I wrote down, but um, some really good resources, by the way, is uh, Audio Autotopia. Um, David uh, Fermani, he's a nice guy, and uh, I, I don't think I've actually met him. I may I may have spoken to him on the phone once or twice, but seems like a super nice guy, really knowledgeable and and great, and. Uh, you know me, I'm always happy to help out and promote anyone that, uh, quite honestly, is is a nice guy. I'm looking, <laughs> I focus on nice guys and I try to stay away from the people that are, 
battling over this sort of thing. And a lot of a lot of you guys have asked me, hey, go on the forums or whatnot. I just honestly, I just want to help people. I'm having a good time. I love what I'm doing. Uh, I'm happy with where I am, and I just don't want to get into any back and forth arguments. That's why I'm really happy, and I thank everybody in the comments of all the drive clean and and and. If anybody says anything goofy, it either gets knocked down or you guys sort of uh, come in and kind of clean it up a little bit, which is nice. At the end of the day, cars are fun. Detailing is fun. You know, I got to make a living at it, but I don't know. I just don't want to get into any arguments. So it's nice to talk to people like David and Autotopia and uh, Detailers Domain and Phil and guys who detail uh, and have bloody knuckles, I like to call it, like me and uh, like I do. And um, I don't know. They're super nice guys. So anyways... Uh, sometimes I go off on tangents. I'm I'm big on nice people and stay away from not nice people. Anyways, I was talking to uh, this person, dishwash soap versus car soap. So today's episode, blah, 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 is going to be on uh, myths. And we're going to talk about the myths. Here we go. Number one, Casey Kasem. Uh, <laughs> I'm losing my mind. It's like 12 o'clock at night and I haven't slept yet. Dishwashing soap. What's the difference? Okay, when you are washing your dishes at home, there's a thing in there called... Uh, emulsifiers. And what they do is, let's take, for example, you've eaten pasta, and I am a huge Italian fan. I love Italian food. So you get your plate all full of pasta sauce and greases and grimes and all that, and you go to go wash it off. Sometimes it does not want to come off when you're spraying it with water. Why? Because it's grease. Grease and water, oil, water, they don't mix. So what happens is the car, the uh, dishwash soap that you use, Dawn, for example, or Palm Olive or whatever your brand of choice is, um, what's going to happen is there's emulsifiers and they act like little balls of, uh, soap. So what happens is they scoop up the, uh, oils and they encapsulate them, uh, and they push them away. So that's sort of the emulsion. I'm being very broad here again. And they scoop, they scoop them up and the water pushes them away. Now, the idea of an oil or a fat is, you know, the, the basis of that is what we call a lipid and lipids happen, happen to be. Fats, same sort of idea. And there's fats, obviously, in pasta or, uh, you know, some Italian food. So what am I trying to say? Dish soap emulsifies fats or lipids. Carnuba wax is a, is a derivative. And again, I'm using very broad because different ones can use different things. So don't pin me to the wall. But it's a type of lipid or it's in that family. So if I were to, the moral of the story is if I were to use dish soap, on something that had carnauba wax on top of it, whatever surface could be car paint, could be whatever, it's going to pick up that carnauba wax or that lipid. It's going to emulsify it or put it in a capsule. And when you wash it, it's going to wash it away. Now, the goal of washing a car with wax on it is to not remove the wax. Now, I must say this a thousand times a day when I talk to people and I get really excited when I'm in front of you know crowds or doing my classes and teaching and all that. Washing a car, cleaning a car, whatever you want to call it, and there's a difference between washing a car or cleaning a car, and we'll talk about that later, but it's the idea of removing contaminants from the surface of your paint. That's the idea of washing your car, and you want to do that in the safest way possible. So whenever I I try to drive it home because it really, I feel like it really makes people stop and think, hey, I got a bunch of dirt on my car. How do I remove that? Do I do it with a waterless wash? Okay, if that's the... Uh, you know, if that's all you can do, okay, fine. Do I do it with a full wash and the foam and the uh, foam gun and the washman? Okay, if it's super dirty, do that. Or do I do it with, you know, spray wax and a towel? That's fine too. But if your brain starts thinking about how do I lift that dirt away from the paint, 
it can kind of change the way that you uh, interact with your car because uh, a lot of people don't have that concept and they'll grind it into their paint. Anyways, the difference between the two of them is when you're making car soap, and I've made thousands and thousands of gallons by myself, uh, you can create it so that it doesn't or minimizes. Uh, I'm, I'm, I don't like to be definitive. You know, definitive. It never removes wax. It's not the case. You can't say that. I wish I could. Um, and the word, you know, you guys know you're listening to me by this time and you've seen me in person and I'm a little wacky. One thing I, I stick to is the truth. I got to give you everything, the truth. And sometimes it doesn't work out. I'm going off on another tangent. I love you guys, but I go off on tangents. You know, I, I don't know if I should be saying this or not, but I've ordered a couple of things and I've made a couple of things. And I said, you know what? I think this is good enough. And I put it in my packages and I put my labels on and blah, blah, blah. And I get to the point and then I test it and I test it and I go, you know what? Crap. I can't sell this because I'm not going to be able to sleep at night because I never got into this to, to like sell products and be Mr. You know, McGuire or whatever. Um, even though he's the man, uh, he's, I just never, it didn't occur to me. I don't know. I'm just really into the nerdy aspect of it and I didn't, whatever. So when I got to that point, I was like, I am not going to just substitute any sort of product. That's going to be something that sells, but I don't actually believe in it. So anyways, uh, that's sort of what I'm dealing with now. And if most of you may know, I had some products that are out. Uh, it's because I made some more and I wasn't really happy with the batch because sometimes things go wrong. You know what happened? You know, I this mixed a little different or the temperature or the barometer or the outside temperature or you got a bad batch. It happens. It happens. But luckily, I look, I tested it and I said, you know what? I, I just, in good conscience, I can't go out with this. So, you know what? We're going to say we're out of stock and I'll make another one and I'll eat all the costs of this. I'll just... I'll use it myself or, you know, give it away or I, you know what I, so I'm a little touchy about the, those sort of things. But anyways, um, when I'm making car soap, <laughs> you guys must be shaking your head. Uh, when you're making car soap, uh, you can remove that factor. I'll, I'll make it very, uh, very blunt. You can remove that factor that emulsifies the oils and the fats. Cause you don't want to remove the wax. You want to remove the surface contaminants, but you don't want to remove the thing that actually protects the paint. So there, is there a difference? There's absolutely a difference. The difference is designed to uh, for different i you know uh, different process. You want to remove fats, use palm olive. You don't want to remove fats and keep the oils in the carnauba on your car. Use car soap. If you actually want to remove the oils, which we talked about a thousand times, uh, to actually penetrate through the waxes or the sealants or the coatings or whatever, and 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 polish the paint, then use palm olive on your paint. So. I think the trouble is, I can't believe I'm already on 10 minutes talking about the first one. I have 15 more to go, um, is a lot of the questions I get. And, oh, by the way, another tangent, I get like five, six, seven hundred emails a day and I love it. And I love all of you and it's wonderful. I'm doing my best to have a family life, um, and detail cars. And at the same time, answer questions. So a lot of the questions I get are not simple answers. Yes, no. Pick number one, pick number two. It doesn't, doesn't really work that way. So um, that's why sometimes it's hard to answer a question, especially when I'm, you know, what's better, dishwash soap or car soap? And I was like, well, what's your situation? So uh, let's move on to number two. Number two um, is kind of an interesting one, and, it, and it, it's not as cut and dry uh, as the dishwash soap and, and car soap. But uh, uh, the question is, uh, is clay, the, most people assume that clay is a non-abrasive, and that is false. Clay isn't abrasive. It's just a different type. Uh, and again, this is my opinion. The clay uh, itself, if you rub it against the car, in my opinion, it is, a, in, it is an abrasive. Well, it's hard to say. Uh, and the reason why is try using it uh, 
uh, on soft paint. And sometimes you'll see it. You'll see these little streaks in it. It happens every once in a while. Um, and if you push really hard, remember we talked about that multiple times in the videos, clay works on friction, not pressure. But if somebody uses too little lubrication and too much pressure, you will cause little uh, love marks, let's call it. A little bit more than love marks, but let's just call it love marks. Uh, so the, it is uh, essentially an abrasive, but it doesn't, I'm using air quotes again, it doesn't have the char characteristics of an abrasive where you're using a an abrasive where you're you're cut you're cutting the paint you're compounding the paint uh, that would be an actual abrasive where there's grit in there designed to 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 level the paint uh, in this in this case it actually rides on top of it and peels things out of it but for definition's sake if you want me to be as clear as possible yes it is an abrasive you know what also is an abrasive your finger on the car when it's slightly dusty that's also an abrasive it's just a fact. I don't know how to say it any other way. So again, um, I think people's eyes roll back in their head when they answer, ask me these questions when I'm doing like seminars or whatever. They're like, oh God, I just, I thought it was a one word answer. I'm like, no, everything changes. That's, that's sort of the fun part when I come to detail a car. It's not, I'm going to detail this car. So step one is do the, it doesn't work. I got to go in there and be like, okay, paint soft. Get the, what the guy, what does he want? What's the tools I'm going to use? What's the least abrasive way? You know what? There's not enough paint here, so I'm not going to They're not going to compound. I'm only going to polish. Everything is different. So anyways, that's one I run into a lot, and uh, hopefully that triggers something in your brain and say, oh, yeah, you know what? It is, an ab it is kind of an abrasive, but it's not classified as an abrasive. Um, this one's super common. I think most of you are going to go, okay, on to the next one. This one's easy. But waxing, repair, swirls. I think... Um, for, I would say 99% of you listening to the podcast, you are just as, uh, up to speed on detailing, uh, probably as I am. And most of you know, by now that waxing does not cure swirls. It hides swirls. Think of wax with regards to swirls. Think of wax as makeup. It fills in the pops and the, the craters and all the little things in your, uh, the appearance of your skin or your car or your paint. And covers them up, but it does not last. So think of makeup lasting a full day until it gets washed away in the shower. Think of wax as after a week or two or what have you. Again, it depends on the wax. It depends on a lot of factors. Eventually, it's going to get washed away, and those scratches are still going to be there. So to remove swirls, and that's going to be episode, I'm looking on my wall, episode 13 of Drive Clean. We're going to talk about how to remove swirls and scratches, and I show the difference of machines and, and that sort of thing. So again... Everybody knows that, but waxes, sealants, coatings, all that, what they're doing is they're hiding your eyes and they're, they're faking your eyes out, which is great. It's totally great. As long as you know the difference, it, there is no right or wrong answer. It's just know the difference, uh, whether you're going to level the paint or not, or you're just going to fill it in and hide it. Number four, I got to read this one. Rotary polisher. Oh yeah. Rotary polisher. Somebody said, well, you're a professional. You only use rotary polishers and DAs are only for weekend warriors. Hmm. Once again, not, not an easy question to answer. Um, so rotary polishers, like I said before, those are the, the mainstay, uh, for professionals back in the day when paint was, uh, appropriate for that. So as paint got thinner, it got much harder. And the reason why paint got thinner, and we've talked about this in podcast is to, dun, 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 to save money or make more money by saving money in, in the, uh, car manufacturing world, Chevy, you know, Mercedes, Porsche, whatever, save some more money. So what, by getting harder, uh, you know, the, the detailing world had to adjust. So in that span of time, 
they had dual action polishers because they wanted people to be able to use them because rotaries are very dangerous. A lot of you have heard this before. The long and short of it is this. I use a DA. I can't even tell you the last time I used a rotary. I only really use a rotary if uh, the last time I used it was I did a plane. And a plane kind of has the same type of material. Don't quote me on this, but the same type of composite material as a boat or it gets very chalky. And for me to use a DA, which I did use a DA, I used the Roops. And no, I do not get paid. Or do I even get free stuff from Roops? Wink, wink, hint, hint. I'm just kidding. Um, but they do make a great machine. And I did use that for the polishing phase. But for the cutting phase, I just go right to the rotary polisher because I have to. But other than that, I would say one out of every 150 uh, polishing, I won't even say cars, things that I do, either boat, cars, plane, whatever, um, I'll use a rotary because of a certain situation. So I'd like to think of myself as a professional. And the answer is no. Professionals do use dual action polishers. Would I use a porter cable? I'm not trying to knock them at all. They were the, they were the S-I-S-H-I-T, uh, you know, back in the day, but technology has changed and we've talked about that at great length. So, so I forget who answered, who asked me this question, but no, people do use, uh, professionals do use dual action polishers as well. Question five, sealants and coatings last for five years. Oh my gosh. I can talk about this for how much time does this podcast run until my computer dies? I can talk about this forever. We're going to be short because uh, my brain is about to explode. Back in the day when I started working um, for this other company and ceased to name them, uh, one of the things that this, you know, the, the, I'm choosing my words carefully, so I'm stumbling. I apologize. I apologize. The people that ran this company uh, essentially, you know, made a bunch of money from me making products and, and them selling it. Uh, to car washes and whatnot. But another aspect of the revenue was selling what we call paper. Now, uh, a lot of you need to sit down for this one. This is kind of a big deal, but it's called selling paper to dealerships. And what happens is you sell something that has a return rate of less than 1%. So if you sell a dealership at, I am going to use fictitious numbers. This is not real. And I'm not saying a, uh, a type of dealership, but I want you all to be heads up because I love all of you. So there are companies out there, I'm being very broad, just like when Matt Farah says, allegedly somebody was doing 150 miles an hour. So allegedly, companies out there will sell paper, and what that does is they give it to the finance department. The finance department will say, you should get a five-year, you know, whatever, whatever they call it, warranty, special, super-duper, protect against laser beams and whatever on your car, but it only costs you $7 a month on the lease, on the lease for three years or six years or five, whatever it is. And you're like, eh, whatever, $7 a month, who cares? But at the end of the, at the, end of the lease, it turns out to be $2,000 or some ridiculous math, whatever that is. It's more than you need to spend based on the theory that, again, I'm choosing my words, that it's a five-year protection or three-year protection or 25-year protection. Um, let's pause and, and reflect for a minute. That's complete balderdash, as they say. It, it doesn't work that way. Sorry. Um, and the fun part is, yeah, it can work that way. Put it on your car, stick it in your garage, never drive it. And I think actually in theory it might work, but it may not. It may actually evaporate at that point. But sure, if you don't ever drive your car, potentially, yeah, it could, you could have some sort of coating on there or wax or sealant or super duper cream or whatever the hell it is. Um, 
but it's unrealistic. So if you think that something is going to last for five years, what I what I think is if you're really into protecting your car and you want to spend $7 a month or $10 a month and amortize it over two years, why don't you go out there and buy a clear bra? There's nothing better than a clear bra. I'm not, I'm not saying that it looks all that great. I'm not saying it looks all that bad. I've actually seen full full wraps. I'm tempted to do it to my car because I detail cars all day long. Sometimes you're like, ah, oh, I just want this car to be protected. If you're really into that, clear bra your entire car. Short of that, I think you're a little bit of a knucklehead if you think it's going to last for five and a half years. So I'll go on the record saying, no, I don't think any coating or any sealant or anything is going to last that five years long. And my point here that I just thought of is technically clear bra, which is many mils thicker than coating will ever be or sealants will ever be, they're not designed to last more than a couple of years. Think about it. So you put a you put a, a thing on your car, a clear bra on your car. You think it's going to last for five years, especially if you're driving it. Yeah, in theory, again, of course, it'll last five years. Put it in the garage or you drive it once every five months. Fine. Yeah, it'll last. But over time, especially the older ones, they'll start to yellow. And the yellowing is the glue underneath uh, getting penetrated by ultraviolet light and basically getting old and turning turning yellow. So the clear bra doesn't get yellow, the glue. So the glue has advanced over time. We're going to talk about this on a drive clean episode. Um, but if you think about it, if a clear bra isn't going to last all that long and it's designed to be removed and put back on, remember a clear bra is designed to be removed and put back on. A lot of people forget about that and they say, oh, I put it on, it'll last for 50 years. Doesn't do that, especially if you're racing or driving at any reasonable speed. So do you honestly think that a coating is going to last that long? Uh, no, it's not going to work. So... Back to the paper thing. I don't know how much I want to get into this because you know, it could be a little whatever. Uh, but essentially, you sell paper. So somebody makes a product or a warranty or a claim, and when you see it, it's actually 15 pages long, basically, that says, we will not cover this, we will not cover this, we will not cover this, we will not we'll cover this, but we're not going to cover this, we won't cover this. It's like, what the heck am I buying here? So you spend all this money, amortize, so it only looks really great. Uh, you know, it only looks, well, it's only 7 bucks, And then... What happens is uh, less than 1%, this is the more bottom line, less than 1% are going to come back and say, my car doesn't look good. And then what happens is they'd come in and hire uh, detailers. We'll leave it at that. That'll come in, fix whatever it is, a scratch, a ding, a da 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 And some people become experts that way. Hmm. And go through lots and lots of cars and fix them and make them look perfect again so that they'll be ready to go. And if you're pushing paper, uh, I'm choosing my words, I'm shaking my head. Uh, if you're pushing paper, then you're cool with living with uh, less than 1% return rate. So basically, you're going to get a bunch, of mon- a bunch of money to sell something that is not exactly true. You know why? Dun, 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 dun. It's, it, it boils down to people forget. People forget. We have lives. We have things to do. And when people forget... They're not going to go back to the dealership and say, oh, yeah, you sold this to me two years ago. You need to, you know, re-wax it or whatever. They forget. And, you know, whoever makes money. I'm moving on so I don't get in trouble. Number six, there is no difference between a $5 pack of microfiber towels and a CVS from CVS and, the to- and a different towel. Uh, okay, so, again, I, these are some uh, random questions that I compiled. Uh, a lot of people are saying, oh, you know, I can go to those big – box stores or whatever and buy for three dollars i can get 752 towels and i'm like all right well yeah absolutely they are in fact microfiber towels but you're missing the point as to the gsm which is the grams per square meter and the density and uh 
if you felt the difference between the two of them, anyone who's in the car industry would be like, hey, you know, this one's really thin and really cheap, which is fine. There's, there's not a right or wrong answer. I'm just giving the facts. Or this one's super thick. Just think about what you'd rather wipe your face with and then make a determination there. So the, in my opinion, no. The, 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 there is a major difference between the two of them, but that's still good. So I, I would love to use those little thin ones for door jams or getting muddy or getting whatever, stick them underneath my seat in case I want to clean my wheel. I, I don't even know. what Something where I can clean it, it's now garbage, I throw it away because you're not going to be able to wash them forever as opposed to something with 250, 300, 350 at max GSM, you can use those multiple times and you're going to wash them and they're going to last. And da, da, da. So I don't know. I, I get a little suspect. If you want to save, you know, $5 or something on microfiber towels, more power to you, but I'm not necessarily sure that that's smart in the long run. Number seven, clay should be used two times a year. Oh, one of my favorite questions. I must get this 500 times a day. Uh, and it is a great question. Um, and again, I'm never, I never, you, you guys know me. I never knock anybody. I love everybody. Um, and, uh, I actually heard a saying, one of my dear friends said, love everybody, but only trust a few. Uh, and I, and I live by that. So I love everybody, but, uh, you know, I'm always careful of other people giving me advice or, you know, something like that. I'm just a little bit crazy. So I research and I try to figure it out on my own. And, um, so keep that in mind. That's probably the best advice I've ever given or it was ever given to me rather. Um, so clay should be used two times a year. One, once again, that's not a, that's not, a, that's that myth. It, that's a myth. You can't, you can't just say that that's too cookie cutter. Um, uh, ideally at minimum. Yeah. I, you know, I guess, but uh, think about it. A lot of the cars that I do are worth millions of dollars. Sometimes I don't clay them. Why? Because they're not driven every single day and they have someone like me caring for them all the time. And it's sort of like saying, you know, I use the cutting the lawn analogy. It's like if somebody cuts your lawn every single day and it's perfect, then you're never going to have to use like some massive, crazy, uh, you know, weed whacker. Or I, I don't know where I'm going with that. But if you maintain it all the time, you may not need to use things that um, that are bigger or stronger than than you than you might need. So, cleaning your car is not necessarily a two times a year thing. It could be a two times a day thing. Or it can be a two times a decade thing. It's dependent on what is there. Remember I said before, you walk in, you assess. So when I start teaching people and I start talking to people, my whole goal is to get them to have all these mental tools that when they walk into a job, their brain is going, okay, you're like, you're going through all these things in your mind saying, okay, what's the best way to do this? How's the, you know, the safest way I use the least amount of product necessary, least amount of aggressive product. And then you sort of assess it. That that's the trick and that's why i think people you know have me come in and do it or or people that work with me or whatever do it because that's the that's the hard part not necessarily you know buffing and not yes that there's a challenge to that it's less and less nowadays because of these machines but the the hard part is actually is not the surgery it's the preparation and deciding what to do surgery on does that make sense so clay is a tool that should be used when it's necessary. So if you clay a car at one o'clock in the afternoon and you pull it outside and it's, you know, whatever month it is where all the trees <laughs> squirt all the stuff everywhere and you park underneath it, well, guess what? You're going to probably have to clay it again in that, in that bad example. If you wash it five minutes, you know, afterwards and it's still soft, you can probably actually get it off. But because I'm insane, if you let it in this mythical story, 
or a theoretical story, if you let it sit there for two days or something and you didn't drive it and it's hard as a rock or whatever, you're going to have to clay it again. So it, there isn't you must clay it two times. You, you, you got to do – does that make sense? I'm sure, I'm sure I'm beating a dead horse here. Number eight t- – <laughs> sorry, I'm reading these and laughing at the same time. T-shirts, diapers, and chamois are the best thing to touch your car. Ain't wrong. That I mean, I don't even need – I'm not sure if I need, need to go into that. T-shirts are awesome because people thought they were super soft, like the one that you've had for 15 years, which, by the way, I still have a shirt. My wife just told me that I've had for 15 years. Uh, before I went into high school, I still have it. It is, in fact, see-through, but nonetheless, I still have it. That's a whole other topic. Uh, it is super soft, but it doesn't have what we now know being the absorption uh, you know, uh, qualities or the pickup qualities like microfiber. Nothing... I would love to see the next evolution of microfiber towel because it's going to be the world's greatest thing. Microfiber, like I said, I wish I invented it because I'd be retired. Number what the heck, Leon? Number nine, liquid wax versus paste wax. Uh, uh, which one is better to use? Some people say liquid wax doesn't have as much carnauba, which we can have a whole other topic on that. Matter of fact, I might do that. Um, liquid wax has more percentage of carnauba than paste wax. Uh, you know, the question resides, uh, a lot of people say wax and I, I already slipped out and said carnauba. So when they say liquid wax has more than paste wax, you have to ask the question, are you talking about carnauba? Or are you talking about sealant? And then you can kind of lean one way or the other, but again, there's no definitive answer. But if you're talking about carnauba, uh, in my, in my opinion, I just prefer paste wax. I just think it's slightly thicker, but they're both really, really good. So I don't, you know, you can persuade me one way or the other. I, can, I think it's not so much that I think one is better than the other. It's just that I'm used to using paste wax. I just like it. Um, because one of the things you think about is you can have the world's strongest paste wax for $800 million a can or whatever. But I wouldn't consider it to be, and again, if we're talking about carnival wax, I wouldn't, con- even the worst, I'm using air quotes, of sealants is most likely going to be more protective than that carnauba wax just because technology today even the worst chemist in the world is still going to make a, a, a superior product i'm using air quotes than let's say a really good carnauba wax so that's why when i talk about carnauba wax in these um you know these training sessions is uh you have to know the limitations of the tools that you have and carnauba wax is really designed as the feather in your cap, or when I talk to these people, I say, it's you got a tuxedo on. The tuxedo is the sealant. That's the thing that looks good. You look sharp. You look ready to go to the party, the whole thing. Carnauba wax, what is that? That's the boutonniere. That's just the flower that goes in the tuxedo, and it's going to die at the end of the night in this you know, psych, you know, uh, mythical story or whatever. Um, theoretical story, I mean. So it's not something that lasts really long, but it looks good. Bang, it pops the eye. It counters the black suit. Where the sealant is going to be, you know, that's tuxedo. You're going to have that for a long time. That, so anyways, that's that, sort of my little analogy. I'm, I'm Mr. Analogy Guy. So right off the bat, it's a myth. You can't just decide, oh, one liquid is better than paste. It's your preference. And then you have to decide, you know, are they talking about carnauba? There's a little wiggle room there. Or are you talking about sealant? So uh, hopefully that gives you a little information that it's, as you notice, one through nine, I've never been like, that is false. And it's false because of this reason. And that's it. Move on to number two. Uh, you know, I'm being a little bit of a crazy person tonight, probably because I have sleep uh, dep- depravity because I've been on the on the West Coast and I'm I'm all whacked out. I haven't slept right. So uh, number ten, uh, this is the one that's coming up. 
and I'm actually doing something about it, which is making me very happy, is the eco-wash. Eco-wash, eco-wash, eco-wash. Now, I get the eco-wash thing. I, I Honestly, I do um, because there's sometimes it's just it is what it is. You, uh, you got to do what you got to do sometimes, um, and I'm a big fan of that. But just for the record, uh, eco-washes, meaning low uh, low water, is, this is just a safe, easy way to say it, using low water. You can use steam or you can use very little water. Is, is just not as good as washing it normally. I, but I don't want to cause any arguments here. I don't want to get 8,000 emails. But I understand that sometimes that's just what you have to do. And sometimes I'm in that situation. And you got to do what you got to do. I, I, I get it. But I'd be hard-pressed for someone to convince me otherwise that an eco-wash, meaning low water or low lubrication, is better than um, more lubrication. And more lubrication equals using actual car wash. Uh, sorry, using actual free-flowing water. So, um, a lot of the things that I've been reading, a lot of people have been, oh, I, you know, I'm only an eco wash guy because it's better. I say, well, you should only be an eco wash guy because that's where you are. That, that's just a fact. You, you know, you're an apartment building. You don't have free flowing water. You got to do what you got to do. Hey, you know, you're gonna have to. Uh, it's a zero sum game. You know, if you're gonna pull a little bit here, meaning you're gonna push the envelope with uh, doing an eco wash because you don't have uh, any free flowing water, then guess what? You're gonna have to make up, a, make it up on the back end with putting more sealant on or more frequent sealants so that you can protect against the time that you do wash. You see how you're saying it balances each other off. If you're going to pull from one end, you got to push the other way. So if you say, hey, I only wash my car with the $7,000 wash mitt and $5 million car soap and I use you know, 17 buckets, and which is awesome. I love it. I'm being a little uh, goofy, but I, I love it. Then you know, because you're, you're, you're pushing so hard on this one, you may not need to do 17 layers of, of wax. You see what I'm saying? I'm I guess I'm giving you this, what, what my mom used to say, give me the straight dope, meaning give me the, give me the truth. I'm sort of giving you the truth and, and, and showing you where you can push and pull uh, in these particular things. So at the end of the day, in my opinion, using less water is not as safe. But you know what? Sometimes you got to do what you got to do. And I've created this new way. Uh, we're going to talk about it a little bit more. And you know me. I don't like to really kind of plug my stuff because I just like yapping into this microphone. I, I think it's more therapy for me than any of you guys. And I, and I appreciate it. everybody's actually downloading it, so it's pretty cool. And you're sending me emails. And when you see me at car shows, you come over and say hi. Make sure you come over and say hi because then I get a lot of emails. Hey, I saw you, but I didn't come. I was like, well, come say hi. Let's talk about cars. Um, a lot of people who know me know that I'm completely insane. So that's fine. Um, so, yeah. So you use water when you can. If you can't, uh, uh, these eco washers are good. Oh, yeah. What I was talking about is I have a – uh, I may be working on a cool product that adds a lot of lubrication uh, that you can add, and I take you through the steps. I'm going to be shooting a video on this. I take you through the steps of actually how to do it, and it's not just me like, hey, guys, welcome to this episode. We're going to wash a car. I'm actually taking you through the steps of where I go and purchase uh, uh, these tools that I actually use for like 30 bucks, and you have it for the rest of your life. And a lot of guys, and if you're in an apartment complex or you're somewhere where you can't do that, you should – Keep your eye out for the next couple of weeks uh, when I do it. I'm really excited about it. I got to go to this different place, and we're going to do these little secret cameras and all this. Stuff. It's going to be fun. So there, those are my 10 myths of, you know, you can Google search them and look online and, and read even more in-depth things. But that's just coming from me off the cuff. And a lot of things I've run into, especially with uh, with where I've been and going lately. And, you know, people are really super awesome. I just uh, – the detailing people are just way different than I think – I mean, it's part of the car crowd, but it's also a little bit different. It's like this kind of not culty thing, but I don't know. You guys are just awesome, and I love that little pool of people because it's uh, everybody's friendly and they want to learn and they want to make their car great, and they're just super sweet. So I, I'm digging it. 
Anyways, um, oh yeah, we'll talk about this a little bit next week, but I just pulled it up because he's the man. So like I said, I got to travel around. Um, and if, if some of you haven't seen it, I actually left the video up. I wasn't going to leave it up, but it's on my YouTube page. You can see how exhausted I was that day. I was working from 12 or 1 o'clock in the morning till 3 or 4 to, in the morning to prep the car for you know two or three hours later for the photo shoots. So I like to work in the middle of the night and make sure it is fresh. I don't like anything to sit there because the longer it sits there, the less pop it has. It's, there's all my little movie secrets. Actually, we'll shoot a video on that one day. Um, but anyways, the guy who drives the car for Bugatti, his name is Butch Lightsinger. I have a video coming out with him. He is the absolute man. The reason why he's the man is you'd never know in a million years that this dude can wheel a car. So if you just go to Wikipedia and look up Butch Lightsinger, L-E-I-T Zinger, L-E-I-T Zinger, Butch Lightsinger. Um, he used to drive for the Bentley, uh, the factory team for Le Mans in 2001, 2002. He wrote, drove for Cadillac, Panos, um, and really, he's uh, known for driving uh, the, the Dyson ALMS team. Um, he won the 24-hour Daytona. He actually, I'm going to read you the stat because it's ridiculous. So he's, the, he's won, it says, winners of Daytona Sports Classic car. So uh, the 24 hours of Daytona. He won it three times, which is like, there's lots of people who won it one time, obviously. And there's lots, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13 people who've won it twice. So the people who've won it twice are, and I'm just going to name out some names that you will know. AJ Foyt, hmm, kind of a good driver. Uh, Al Unser Jr. is one of them. Uh, not, not a bad. And there's a bunch of other guys that you think you might know. Um, but then you go up to three times and three times is Derek Bell. Oh, he's like a ridiculous uh, uh, Porsche driver. And then there's Butch Lightsinger, Juan Pablo Montoya, if you don't know who he is. Come on now. Uh, Brian Redman, Mimo Rojas, and Andy Wallace. Ridiculous drivers. And then there's only there's one or two guys who've won it four times. And there's uh, two guys who've won it five times, Hurley Haywood and Scott Pruitt. So think about it. He's won it three times. This guy's insane. And the point of the story is I got to walk around and hang out with him. I didn't know if I was more excited to see the Bugatti because um, I've seen it a few times, and it's awesome. It's an amazing car, 1,200 horsepower, uh, Grand Sport Fantastic. We'll talk about it a little bit more next week, and I'll give you a bunch of stats that will make you just, like, shake your head like this is insane. Crazy engineered car. But I was more excited to meet Butch because I was like, oh, my God, this guy's unbelievable. And he's super down to earth. You'd never know that he is just a badass. Uh, so we had lunch together, and I got to meet all the Bugatti people. I'm just loving life right now. I think it's it's just amazing. I'm super grateful. But uh, anyways, a lot of these questions came up when I was sitting around talking with people and it's not, they're not like, Oh, they don't know the, the answers to these. It's just, I love when people come to me and say, Hey man, I got a question about this. I'm like, all right, awesome. Let's, let's talk about it. And, and it triggers me saying, who, what can I talk about on the next podcast to just, if you know, my goals, if one person gets one little thing out of this, then fine. I'm having fun. And I think it's more, like I said, more therapeutic for me than anything. So, uh, let's move on and talk to Jonathan Adler. Uh, like I said before, crazy car guy. Um, and it's, and it's fun to kind of get out of the crazy, um, uh, detailing aspect and kind of in, engulfing yourself in those little tiny nuts and bolts and all that, and kind of switching over a little bit and hearing from a financial guy, uh, as to how the market is moving and how the market is changing. So, uh, without further ado, let's, let's patch him in cause he's a smart guy and uh, a really good friend of mine. So here we go. Hey, Jonathan, are you there? I'm here. All right. Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. I see you every single day, and it's nice to finally get you on the, the podcast and have everybody listening. Um, 
learn from your vast years of crashing things in cars. <laughs> if someone can learn from it, that would be lovely. Yeah. So, um, yeah, what we're going to talk about, we talked about this a little bit in the, the first part of the podcast, but, um, you know, you are, uh, essentially a crazy gearhead and been doing it for a long time, motorcycles, cars, uh, race cars, Lotuses. I mean, we will get into all that stuff, but basically you handle a lot of financial and, 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 uh, insurance, uh, related things. And it's very interesting to talk to you about how that relates to the car, uh, aspect or world. So we have a couple different topics that we're going to go over. I'm going to shoot you a bunch of questions and I think it, uh, I think it'd be helpful to the, to the listeners. How's that sound? It sounds, sounds good. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's not like we don't talk about this all the time anyway. Yeah. I said, Hey, can we put a microphone in front of your face? And you're like, um, <laughs> sure. Sure. So right off the bat, first one, HPDE. Well, well, first explain what HPDE is to the listeners oh, that don't know. Right, exactly. So I guess, you know, in, in the, the gray medium between I'm a street driver and I'm a full-time racer is somewhere in the middle of the, there's, it could be like the weekend warrior. It could be the person who's making that transition who's saying, you know, either I'm doing things on the street I should not be doing, or I really want to become a better driver. I want to know what my car can do. I want to get on a racetrack basically, but I don't want to go full bore, like roll cage, trailer my car. I just want to like want to get some instruction right so you, you get on a track day technically it's called hpde high performance driver education right sounds like a misnomer for a way to get around things that it might be but it's basically it's a track day it's a non-competitive event and that's what that is so now let's say you decide well i want to do this i really want to get my car on a track which i'm sure you and i can both agree one lap around a racetrack is more fun than your whole day, you know, getting stuck behind minivans on your favorite road. And when someone does it, they're totally hooked. So I think we're probably preaching to the converted here, but hugely entertaining. So now you decide you want to do it, but you're like, what if I wrap my beautiful fill in the blank here around a guardrail? Like that's not too enticing. And that might keep people away from it because newsflash, the majority of regular car insurance does not cover an event. Even so though what are you racing. saying? I go to a racetrack with my Geico and I stack it up on turn two. They're not going to pay for it. Are you crazy? Well, it's a miracle how many car crashes take place just outside of racetracks. <laughs> yeah, it's so, fascinating. For, for all it's of those like, listening, it's like uh, when you, you listen to Matt's podcast, they say, uh, you know, hypothetically, I think I saw you doing 180 on the road, but that wasn't me. So in theory, some guys in this uh, mythical world, they'll go to the racetrack from uh, what I'm hearing. You and I don't do this. But they'll stack their car and then they'll tow it to the out to the street and say, "Wow, this this tree jumped out in front of me and I I crashed. I just happened to be next to a racetrack." Yeah. I will say, uh, if anyone's heard of the red mist, I mean, if you come off a racetrack, even if you're just a, a spectator, it's like you think you know you're Ayrton Senna when you pull out of the front gate and you pitch your car sideways and you really can wrap your car outside of a racetrack yeah. if you don't like scale yourself down. Yeah. But these are people who like wad their car and then dump it down a cliff outside the racetrack. This is not what I'm talking about. Okay. And I would say that almost every regular car insurance has a clause that once you enter the gates, like they're out. You're on your own. Don't most and, cars have like uh like the GTR or I can't remember. This is off the cuff, but isn't one of them if you if you do the um, was it not a brake stand but uh, oh no the, you're talking about the early GTRs had a launch control launch control did it a few times avoid your warranty like that's a lovely button to have in your car I think they they stopped that uh, last year I think uh, meaning that they they scaled down the launch control and now you're not going to avoid your warranty but yeah which I makes mean, it completely pointless of having that button I, in the beginning but anyways I digress uh, yeah. <laughs> 
So go ahead, explain HD, HPDE insurance policies. Right. Go ahead. Right. So now you know you, you you go to the track, and if you if you mess up your car, like you know you stand up person, and you're not gonna try any funny business, you have no coverage, right? So that's some something of a looming, terrifying thing to do. So a limited number of specialty insurers will actually issue something called an HPDE insurance policy that covers non-competitive driver education uh, events. Whether you have an instructor or not, as long as they're sanctioned events, and sanction means that the insurance company recognizes the organizer and it's on their website or a covered event that you can select. You can buy a per-event one-off policy. You can buy a multi-event policy. And I don't sell these things, but I'm a fan of it. And I am a customer because I've actually used it. Meaning you've you've caused some sort of damage. I won't go so far as to say crash, but you've caused enough damage or whatever, and oh, yeah. and you've utilized like they paid oh. for your splitter or whatever. Oh, they paid for my stuff. It was actually kind of interesting because I mean, you know, talking to an insurance company about an accident is like talking to your parents. Like you're instantly 16 with a junior license when they're like, "What happened?" You're like, "I don't know. I wasn't speeding, and some guy jumped out." You know, like that's what you're saying. So here I'm putting in the claim. And the guy's like, I, I tell him what happened. I'm like, yeah, you know, I came around this turn. I probably was getting a little too hot and the rear end was coming out and I was holding it. I was holding it. And finally, my last lap around, I lost it and like, whatever. So the guy's like, okay, I just want you to tell me again what happened. This is going to be on a recorded line. And I'm like, I got, I thought it was so exciting to say to an insurance company, I went too fast and I crashed. <laughs> and they're like, okay, great. Where do you want the check? <laughs> like, oh, that's pretty awesome. That That is pretty cool. So, before we get like crazy into it, back up a little bit and explain how much um, ballpark wise, how much does it cost to actually go to the track? I'm talking rough and use use examples for yourself, and then people can extrapolate, you know, whatever they want based on the location of their country or where they are and what track they they go to. But use examples that are relevant to you, and then say how much is it more to have insurance to cover me for that track day? Did you follow my logic? Oh, yeah, totally. So remember, the fees for the racetrack is, is the same regardless of car that you have, right? So whether you've got a Bugatti or, you know, clapped out old whatever, uh, a track day with, you know, a reputable group could be as little as 100 and change dollars per day and maybe as much as five or 600, maybe more depending upon how much track time, how many cars, whether you're getting a catered lunch or you're eating, you know, you're peeing in a Porta John, whatever it is. So we find around here in the Northeast, with our tracks, you're going to spend between 150 and about 350 dollars. And is that with or without an instructor? No, actually, it's usually with an instructor in most instances. The price difference is little or, or zero whether you're getting instructor or you've graduated beyond that. Okay. All right. So 150 to let's call it 500 bucks, depending uh, yeah, on a okay. very high side. Yeah. Yes. And so insurance. Then, right. So the insurance is now tied to the value of your car. Because if you're insuring, you know, a Ferrari or insuring a Honda Civic, obviously your insurance premiums would be different, and it kind of follows through. But the interesting thing with HPDE is you're you're stating how much your car is worth, and based upon what you state, you get a policy. So, for example, like I'm running a Lotus Elise that I have insured for thirty thousand, which P.S. I should probably raise because I think they're going up now that they're stop importing them. But thirty thousand dollars is what my insured value is, and then I guess they have some formula and they figure it out. So if I do a per event, I think I was paying. No more than two hundred, hundred eighty nine dollars, I think, or two hundred odd dollars per event. But I ended up buying a, like a nine or twelve event policy, so it was it was working out to maybe one hundred fifty, one hundred sixty dollars per event. Which to me, look like anything else. You hope you never use it, right? I hope I wasted the money. Um, but the fact that I have actually utilized it, and you know, it worked, and that I mean, that's what insurance is about, right? 
Hmm. So I'm just doing some math in my head. That's why there's steam coming out in my room right now. Uh, so like, let's call it $400 for the track day and then $150 average for the insurance to go to the track day. So you're looking at $600 all in. Is that excluding I mean, gas and whatever? I mean, I would say obviously like, you know, we're, we're not playing checkers, right? It's, it costs a little bit to do what we do. You want to play, you got to pay. But I would say on average, I pay between 160 and 300 for track days, and yeah, maybe a buck and a half to 200. So you know, call it a four to five hundred dollar day, right? Now, gas is really a material consumables. If we're really going to get into the economics of track days, right? You're not gonna, you can't win track days, and you're definitely not going to make money at it. But you know, I've chosen a car, and when I used to race bikes, I chose bikes that have a relatively low consumption rate of stuff. Like, and what I mean by that is tires, brakes, fluids, you know, like if you don't hit anything, what does it cost me to go to a track day? Right. Yeah. So uh, you know what? Yeah. You're making me look at you. You're making me think. I don't, I don't like to do that. I'm all the sorry. Time. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> so with the Lotus, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. Wait a second. Everybody be quiet. No, um, yeah. So with a Lotus, it's super light. I'm thinking out loud here. So your brakes, I mean, you're probably going to go through brakes and tires like everybody else, but it's not as I'm trying to think of a heavier car, like an M3 or something. Well, an M3 is like sort of in the middle. Like think of like, you know, our friend in his brand new GT500 Mustang. Oh, geez. That's a perfect example. Yeah. Right. So this is a car. It's like brutally fast. So it's like eating rear tires. It's, you know, sorry, bro, but it's heavy. And, you know, and it's got a lot of just inertia as it gets thrown around. So it's going to, it's going to eat up brakes. It's going to eat up. And when I say brakes, it's pads, it's rotors. And fluid. fluid, Right. Fluid. Like these guys, like the heavier cars are changing their fluid sometimes every track day. Right. And they're going through tires. Uh, I know guys with bets that are running our compounds that are going through a rear tire in a couple of days, right? So they're doing pads. I see guys at a long weekend event on M3s are changing their pads like each morning, right? And I'm looking at my Lotus and I'm like, oh, I should clean my windshield. Like, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) I never actually put that together, but, you know, it is – like like you said, you're not going to, you know, unless you're, you know, Senna or something, you're not going to be making money at this if you're doing HPDE days, you know, you're not a pro. Definitely not. So how to minimize this and at the same time save your investment. I'm just thinking out loud. Wow, that's I didn't piece that together where a Lotus would be significantly less of a pain in the butt, let's call it. And the pain in the butt is all the little things that we just talked about versus a, you know, GT500 that's got three times the amount of horsepower. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Almost four. Um, but it's bananas. But so it's interesting because I'll get, uh, running our compounds, I'll get sometimes four to six track days out of a set of rear tires and I will heat cycle out my fronts before they ever look like they're worn out. I'll do 12 days on a set of fronts if I'm not really running hard and they still look brand new. I have to throw them away because they're heat cycled, you know, and I'll get four to six days out of rear brakes and I'll get six to eight days out of fronts. My, I changed my fluid maybe twice a season days you're referring to i'm trying to individual days race days of course and then explain what heat cycling is come on jonathan okay i'm sorry you're right i industry terms so heat cycling is is a street tire is really not subject to this it's designed to be driven when every time you run a tire it gets hot like you know if you even if you're just driving on the highway you pull it into your driveway and you put your hand on your tire it's warm and the only way a tire actually generates any grip is through slip angle, which is generating friction, which creates heat. And I'm a nerd, and I'm sorry. Oh, who am I talking to? That's right. Um, so a track tire, though, is designed to get substantially hotter and needs to maintain its heat. And every time it goes to a heating and cooling cycle, it changes, I guess, on somewhat of a molecular chemical level. And each time it goes to a cycle, it's ever slightly less sticky 
like real race tires, like I'm talking slicks when I used to race bikes, like you cycle out a tire, you know, two, three heat cycles and it's in the garbage. It doesn't stick as well anymore. Now in our compound, which some guys run on the street can handle more cycling, but really you could say that if you're doing four sessions a day and you do five days, you know, 20 cycles, this thing's kind of done. Like it still works, but when you're out there, it's not like it was when it was brand new. Hmm. And you get to a point where, like, it's just sliding around too much. Like, you're driving in the rain. Like, throw these things away and get a new set. Yeah. Yeah. No, I wanted you to make sure that we explained that fully so we didn't uh, – that's a that's an important concept, especially to racing, obviously. I mean, same thing with, with brakes. If you're going to – when you – a street brake is designed to be quiet, not make a lot of brake dust, and last a long time, right? But it doesn't grip all that well. And when they get hot – I mean, I think I'm really nerd out here. Um, okay, so energy cannot be created or, or – or, um, uh, what's uh, destroyed, it can only be converted, right? So you burn gasoline, you, you burn energy to create forward motion in your car. You have to convert the forward motion to heat to slow down your car, and that's all a brake is, is a heat conversion device. And as your brake pads squeeze the rotors, they're generating a lot of heat. Once the rotors can no longer dissipate heat, your car is not slowing down anymore. Hence so the that, reason we have slotted rotors and we have yes. drilled rotors and we have, uh, you know, right. so uh, like, vents and whatnot. I roasted rotors on, on, on a car once before it turned black, a street car, and they like like it, the pedal didn't go to the floor. The pedal stopped and nothing else happened and it's terrifying. So like a race setup will, will generate will, – will can have a, a higher heater range, meaning a higher heater – does that make sense? A higher heat range. Mm-hmm. So they can get hotter and still stop the car. Um, they won't destroy, annihilate your rotors. and. But you'll lose you know. some of that comfort. Like I was driving Musto's car, the Mustang, and he put race pads on it and it's – at every a, single time at the you at sound the, like an old school bus and people look at you like what's wrong with your car dude yeah. and you're like race car i that's i, I kept rolling on the way i'm like it, it's race brakes i yeah uh, they're like yeah okay dude like, no, no yeah worries. you don't take that car on a date and the girl's like what's up with your car man? yeah so like that's and then they generate crazy amounts of dust and whatever but hey this is the, it's a trade-off you can't have it all so yeah so brakes are an issue with that fluid you have good fluid otherwise it boils up and if you ever lost brakes, which I have on the back straight of Monticello, it's terrifying. I can imagine. It's scarier than that. Slowing down from 160 with no, uh, no Not pedal. Not slowing down. Or, yeah, I guess that's true. Now, a, a little while ago, you mentioned um, cars as investment versus modes of transportation and how things have changed. And, you know, we talked about this a little bit before. And I'm, I'm obviously good friends with your father, and I've known you for, I don't even know, 15 years or whatever. And we were talking about this, and I said, oh, no, don't, don't say any more. Let's do it on the podcast because it's pretty cool. But explain your theory, which I happen to agree with, uh, how different generations value, uh, you know, obviously different cars. And then, well, I'll let, you, I'll let you get into that whole thing as to why Camaros all of a sudden, you know, are selling for you know, a million dollars or what have you. And your dad's like, well, what the, you know, that doesn't make any sense because he's an older generation. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, my dad is is – stunned by this stuff my dad is born in 1930 he's 83 years old he's like the original gearhead i mean my you know my dad grew up having mgtc's and tds he had an original porsche speedster which he hated because he said you couldn't see out of it and it sucked in the rain i was like oh yeah i wish you had that today Mm. Uh, a 49 jag xk 120 i mean heelys and you name it like all this awesome stuff that were just cars back then but he grew up with those original British sports cars and, you know, the, 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 the original heyday of, of when it was truly a sport, like you didn't know if you're going to get home or not. And 
you know, so he sees, you know, these vintage Mercedes and Duesenbergs and Bugattis and Jags. I mean, these were special hand-built cars. They, they, were, they were made in small numbers, and they, and they were museum pieces, and, and they were worth every penny. And then he, we're watching Barrett Jackson, and we're looking at a 69 Camaro that's, like, not even a real copro. It's like a recreation. And he's like, how is that selling for hundreds of – they made millions of those cars. He's like, how is this car a collectible? I'm like – you know, because that's what my generation grew up with, and that's what we want. And that, you know, that thing that was on my wall in 1980 something that I lusted after because I wanted a black Countach like they had in the Cannibal Run movie. And now, like, it's not the greatest car, but like, I have to have it, or a slant nose 911, or a DeLorean, or God knows what else, because that's what I lusted after. And my generation's kind of in the money right now, and that's what we're buying. We yeah, it's like some... this cycle of of when the no, go ahead. Disposable... I like, we don't want a Model A. Yeah, yeah, it's like a cycle of disposable income. You know, when whenever who has that disposable income, you know, super high, which would be, you know, uh, you know, I guess more your age at this point, as opposed to your father, let's say, that's when the, the values of these cars go up. So, I mean, the Duesenbergs and whatnot are still very expensive because they're rare. But I, I, you mentioned that today, and I was like, man, that actually makes sense to me. That's so strange that a car that there's literally thousands of would have this exorbitant price. That's uh, it, it didn't work in my brain, but you make a good point on that. Even like the, the what they call the, the Bronze Age or whatever they're calling it, like the Model A's and the older big wheel cars with the, you know, it's like, like pre-war or something. They're not real. Like there's no mar- there's not much. Oh, no market. There's not much of a market because people who are in their 40s or something is like ah, what, what you know what? what maybe you're a real collector or a passionate. But a lot of guys are going to have a, just a handful of cars. Like what are they going to do with the Model A? You know? Yeah, I you know I was thinking about that going to car shows and sometimes you just sit there and I don't know I zone out a whole lot. I zone out every day, but. I'm zoning out looking at this car show and saying, is this going to last? Because I know, the, I know the younger generation is super into cars. There's no doubt about that. So car shows will last. But when I'm looking over and I see like a crazy old car, you know, Model T, like you're saying, and I see the guy that gets out of it, he's kind of Model T himself. You know what I'm saying? Like he's not going to be around forever. Yeah, like, it's, no, it's no surprise the guys who get out of the 57 Chevy are still wearing the, bowl, wearing the bowling shirt that they wore you know, back in the day. <laughs> yeah, and the cigarettes rolled up in their sleeve, which I love. It's just, you know, it's a fact of life that, you know, these things are going, you know, this, these, I don't know how to say it in a nice way, but these people are going to die out. And no, what's going to happen to the cars? I mean, like, I hope their sons are going to take it, but are they going to have that same passion or is it going to be more low riders? Or, you know, it's kind of interesting to see that evolution. You know, I, I parallel this to what Cadillac had to do in the last 20 years when they realized that if we don't do something soon, our entire buying, you know, our entire consumer base is going to die shortly as Florida sinks into the ocean, right? I mean, if you think, go back 20, 30 years, and every Cadillac was by, been driven by like a blue-haired little woman that you couldn't see from the back of the car, right? Mm-hmm. Like the stereotype was like it was an old person's car, and now it's like they're cool. Yeah, I wonder if Buick picked up the phone call on that one or they not. just sell lots of cars in china and they don't care what happens here yeah that that's that's the funny thing and then and then i was thinking hey maybe they're just going for that because nobody wants to go for that di- like they would you want to suck everything they possibly can out of that generation because i i know a ton of family members that own buicks but they're all in their 60s and like buick was like cool like cadillac and i'm thinking now like i would never see short of uh the, the uh what's the buick i'm thinking of that i love it's out of my mind well, like a uh, GNX, a Grand yeah, Master. exactly. I was gonna say Darth Vader. Um, short of that one, you know, Buick makes a nice car, but I, I just, I, I, I would never fathom going out and buying a Buick because it's just they haven't switched over like Cadillac. Where if I had the loot, man, I'd buy a Cadillac CTSV, like no doubt. Those, those cars are unbelievable. Yeah, but cool. they made that transition. So interesting, interesting stuff. Um, 
Now, there's one of the thing we were talking about. Are you done on that, or do you want to talk about the taxation of collector collector cars? Well, I mean, obviously, being in the financial world, that kind of fascinates me. I mean, I yeah, we can jump to that totally. All right. So apparently, Chuck Schumer, our uh, local rep, Chucky boy here, uh, proposed a tax in 2011, um, basically putting uh, an exorbitant tax on car collection, which would I guess defeat the purpose as uh, having cars as investments. Is that a fair statement? Well, I guess he was trying. I guess it went nowhere. I remember hearing about it. I can't believe it was over two years ago. And I actually found the the, uh, the article in the Times about it. And I remember hearing about it because, see, each state treats tax different. Like, for example, state of Connecticut has a, each town has a mill rate, and you actually pay personal property tax on the stuff you own every year, right? Because normally you buy a car, like you know, a normal car. You buy it for thirty grand. You sell it ten years later for ten grand. There's no tax, right? You didn't make money. You lost money. And the IRS seems to think that that's okay. You don't have to pay tax on losing money, thank God. But if you bought a car for 30 grand and you sold it 10 years later for 40 grand, you would have a gain of 10, right? So because you register it and you register the sale of it, you would have to pay conceivably, and not conceivably, you would pay a long-term capital gain of the profit of the car. It's no different if you bought a stock for 30,000 and sold it for 40,000, right? with me so far? I'm with you. Right? But in the state of Connecticut, they also have each year you pay on the value of your car, and they use some outdated tables on what the car is worth and whatever. So he was saying that he wants to make it a federal thing that everybody who has cars pay as they go, whether even if they don't sell the car, right? Which, first of all, how do you put numbers? They have to have a whole department that's going to value cars. Could you imagine the government got into classic car valuation? Like what a mess that would be. And what was classified as a classic car? What it- well, they're saying, like, lots of people collections collections of cars that are never um, registered, right? So they're never registered. They don't pay any tax on them. Oh, right? Oh, yeah. So, like, he's talking about that. And, 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 of course, you read the article, just beating up on everybody who has a collector car. It's, like, unbelievable. But uh, they want to, you know, pay 10% of the value of your car in tax just for having it. Which so is doesn't, like- doesn't California have that, like, a possession tax or something well i don't even know to be frank with you but i know i know like in connecticut they have personal property taxes something like that it just kind of blows my mind because they're telling all these transactions are private sales they're cash transactions i I don't i have no idea but i just thought it was fascinating because if it's property then you have to get it evaluated every year so you have to be in a you have to get an appraisal of your car every year and it's it's market driven just like anything else i mean like when enzo ferrari died in the late 80s like that's when things blew up and then it crashed in the 90s with the recession. Then it blew up again. Then it crashed with 9-11. Then it blew up and then it cra- It's like it goes up and down like any other market. Now it's on fire. Yeah. Did, did Shelby – I mean I know the right before he was about to pass, things were getting crazy. Did Shelby go up at all? Do you know or no? Oh, yeah. I mean they all went up. I mean Michelle Cobras have always been at that. Like, there's always like you know what's like the top 10 collectible cars and they're like you know a bunch of Ferraris – you know, forgetting outside of like the older cars, a bunch of Ferraris and, you know, then like a Cobra and whatever. And of course they all went up. There's no doubt. But really, I think the highest Cobra record took place right before the mortgage crash, which I think was in 07 when he sold his personal Super Snake, which was a twin Paxson Super, I think it's Paxson, twin Supercharged 427 that went for 5 million plus a 10% buyer fee or a seller's fee, whatever it's called, uh, commission. So it was 5.5 million for Cobra. I think that's the high water mark on a Cobra. Jesus. But it's bananas. <laughs> it's bananas. That is bananas. So – Yeah, I see who are my fake Cobra. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, tell me the cars that you have. I'm sure people are like, wait a second. We're talking about motorcycles and cars. Go through the go through the Adler list of, 
And by the way, this is not the Jonathan Adler. What's the other Jonathan Adler that I see on buses all over the place? <laughs> He's on buses now? Yeah, in so, the Hamptons, yeah. I see a Jonathan Adler bus. Oh, I didn't tell you I have a bus now. Yes. Um, no, this uh, I, I share a name, unfortunately, unfortunately, unfortunately with a fellow who's uh, getting quite notable um, sort of housewares and in style designer guy who's got stores all over the area. He's on TV. He's got buses, evidently. And it's just kind of funny with my name. Um, but I have a whole store full of monogram stuff I can buy. So it kind of works out. <laughs> and unfortunately for you, you have no style. So, you know, oh. it works out perfectly. But I'm bummed. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So tell me your your list of cars that you have. I don't. I mean, right now it's nothing too crazy or impressive. I mean, it's like you know your everyday is BMW, and this I've had a Superformance replica Shelby Cobra for forever, like eleven well eleven years, twelve years, a long time, um, which has been an amazing car. It's like driving a three ring circus. It is a lot of fun. Um, and then um, I used to race motorcycles for a long time. Um, not now. And I, what I bought to entertain myself and do track days, I bought a Lotus Elise, which I think is just such an incredibly entertaining car. It's a giant smile on your face. And that's it right now. That's it right now. But you've had motorcycles and you've had, I'm sure, motorcycle fun things that happen in, in yeah. hospital visits, if I remember correctly, because I, re I visited you there while you were unconscious. You – yeah, I faintly remember that. Yeah, I, that's exactly right. <laughs> I was not a lot of fun. I was no. really not happy. But see, yeah, I, I mean, I raced, I rode bikes, motorcycles for 20 years. I, before, I used to race BMX bikes when I was a kid. I used to race all kinds of stuff. Anything I can, you can race, I have probably tried to. But um, I started I started riding bikes pretty young, but I, I uh, never did dirt. I always did a road race. And I mean, like, not illegal, like on a real racetrack. And um, I race primarily lightweight bikes, which is 250cc GP bikes, which are two-stroke, like what they race in Europe up until very recently. Um, so I won a little regional championship back in 2001 um, on an Aprilia, and then I crashed a beautiful Ducati in 2009. So, yeah, I've got like a pound of titanium inside of me. It was super fun from a couple different events. <laughs> but I've had some neat stuff. Like so bikes that, I, of course, I wish – you know what's going to happen, of course – like 10 years from now, I'm going to be at an auction bidding on a 2000 Honda RC51 because I had that bike and I should have never sold it. Now I'm going to pay five times more than it's worth to own it again, right? I mean, that that's the whole – that's the broad concept that we're talking about, how the car collecting is changing over the years because it's whatever the value that you place on it. Like I, I like Model Ts. I think they're cool or whatever, but I, would, I don't think I'd ever spend money on one. So I, I just feel like that – that's that rolling change. Like for me, it's going to be, you know, the, the Porsche, the, you know, the 964 that I love that's, that happens actually to be going up in value because I think the people who desire those cars are their disposable income is going up and everybody's fighting to get the one. It's, I, I really find that fascinating. I feel like that should be an article in the times or something about how that's changing. Well, you know, my, a long time ago when I was trying to sell, I forget what the hell it was. When I was a kid and, and I was like, I tell my dad it's worth this much, but I can't get that. My dad's like, listen, something is worth when only what someone else is willing to pay for it. And it was sort of an enlightening moment for me as a kid. And you're like, yeah, I guess you kind of have a point there. I mean, like it is a market, right? There might be gals and NADA and whatever that says what a car may be worth. But let's be frank. It's if there's no one there to buy it, it's not worth squat, right? Mm, that's so that's why comparables exist. When you're buying a house, you look at comparables. What did everybody else? What's the square footage? You're like, okay, I have a ballpark price that this neighborhood costs this much, a.k.a. this car, this model costs about this much. But if you walk up in there and you're like, oh, my God, I got to have this car, you're probably going to shell out a, more than it's actually worth. Oh, please. Like every spring, I get offers to buy my Cobra for like 10 or 15 grand more than it's really worth because the guy's like, I want one for the summer and I don't want to wait for one. 
you know, and it's kind of an, it, that's that's a market, right? Yeah. And so anything else, and that's why you know my dad's stunned that on, that they pay a hundred grand for a car they made millions of. <laughs> yeah. It's just I mean I'm like what I mean what Pebble Beach last week set another high water mark for Ferrari for twenty seven million dollars. I bought it. I just you, yeah. you let the cat out of the bag. I, I bought it actually. <laughs> yeah, I was talking to a guy. Um, out there and i'm gonna do a, i'm gonna do a full episode on pebble beach and i'll probably do it with mike because i was with mike but um i was out there and i met a, a couple of guys and and one of them was in the shipping industry and he was talking about how um most people who buy ships or or commission ships to, or i don't want to say ships but yachts really big freaking boats that they're you know, luxury mo- personal boats. exactly yeah. they actually never receive them because they get so impatient that they buy somebody else's. Because when you're when you're building, it's like building a fifty thousand square foot thing. It takes like ten years to make a home. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. a lot of guys are like, hey, I got loot. I want to. I want a luxury yacht right now. I want to go to the Mediterranean next summer, and they end up buying somebody else's that was made before it. And I think they. I think that gap is the same sort of idea where you can buy. You can pay. The seller gets a premium because it's like I have it right now, or you can wait for yours. That's going to be made in three years. Do you, you know? I remember when. What, what year did the mini come out? Like two thousand and four, maybe. Yeah, two thousand four, two thousand five. I think. Yeah, like we had we had gotten like a, just a basic like five option mini, just as like a you know station car, or whatever. We leased it, right? So you know when you lease a car, breaking it early is like all kinds of impossible. Mm-hmm. We were like a year and a half into the lease, and the dealer's like, "I will buy out your lease and give you fifteen hundred dollars right now if I can have your car." And we're like, "What?" Because they couldn't make them fast enough back then, and they were selling used cars for more than new cars. And I'm like, this doesn't happen. No, that's the Ferrari model. <laughs> yeah, I and think... it's like it happened. We like they paid us for this car. We're like, this is this is bananas. But yeah, yeah, Ferraris are great because you know they can't sell them for any more than than the yeah. factory suggests. So a lot of guys get on the list, they buy them, they drive them around for a week, and they sell them back to the dealership as a used car. The dealership then marks it up. X amount of dollars, fifty, a hundred thousand, whatever it is, because that's the hot car. The four, five, eight went out. I mean, that was hot car at that. But now you can just go to a dealership and buy it. So, you know, just like business and stocks and bonds and what you know, it's just like this rolling scale. So, I mean, I was looking for an angle. I mean, remember Lexus tried to stop that from happening with the uh, LFA, so they tried to lease it to people, and like yeah. nobody wanted it. Yeah, because they don't want to do that deal. They don't sign up for that. Yeah, exactly. Free market economy, man. So, yeah. Very interesting stuff. I appreciate you uh, you coming on and giving us the financial aspects of uh, owning, buying, I guess selling, uh, you know, classic slash exotic slash whatever uh, sports cars, which is kind of kind of interesting. You're an interesting guy. You know that? Really? Nah, I'm only saying it because we're on uh, we're on podcast. As soon as it hangs up, I'll you know. Yeah, but I have it recorded, so I can play it back for you every time. I, as a matter of fact, when your phone rings, it's gonna be your voice going. You're an interesting guy. You're yeah, interesting guy. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, dude. I I appreciate you coming on and giving us a little insight from your your background of of racing and and insurance and and whatnot and kind of getting people to think. That's the whole idea of these podcasts, Jonathan. Thinking, thinking, thinking. How can I uh, get people on here to? Pour good expand, stuff into the listeners' brains. Expand their consciousness. There you go. I love it. That's what it's all about. Anyways, do you have any plugs? I always ask that, but I'm not really sure you're a plug guy. You can't really say too much because financial. I, I was, you know what? Like, here's the thing I would plug. I would think that everybody who's listening to this is an enthusiast. And all kidding aside, I don't care what you have. You really should get on the track. You know, I don't work for them or anything like that. I've seen guys. I saw a guy once show up. He owned a car service. He showed up with a Lincoln Town car at a track day. 
This guy wheeled this car around legitimate sports cars, okay? It doesn't matter what you have. You can wheel a car. You should be on the track because you will learn so much about it. You think you're a good driver? Your car is so much better of a driver than you. You should really get out there, everybody, and, and, and you know, drop the text thing, and then I'm good. You know what? I, I, uh, I totally agree with that. And from one of the – when you own a supercar like that, uh, you know, I owned a Cobra, you own a Cobra, and then we've you know, both been on the track. You certainly way more than I have, but – you kind of have a different perspective when you're on the street. You're like, eh, you know, I'm not going to like be Andretti on the street because you kind of get it out on the track. I almost feel like everybody, part of the driving culture, you know, you get your license at 16, they should throw you on a track and say, you know, give you a special car and say, spin this off the track so you see what it really feels like. And then when you get on the road, you won't be such a peckerhead. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> you'll be. It's so true because actually most race car drivers are like grannies on the street because it's like the street is boring and it's dangerous. And you ride a motorcycle. I mean, if you like make it through the other end and you're still alive, like you're such a better driver because like when I drive after riding a motorcycle, you're like not only driving down the street, but like you're looking at that gravel patch, that raised manhole cover. You see a kid playing around a parked car and you can see his ball rolling underneath the parked car and any second now he's going to emerge after it. You see things that you, the average driver is such in a cocoon. Like, you know, one of the things I learned on the track, a, dry, a coach says, you know, you're looking, you're not looking far enough ahead. So he took a masking tape and he put it across the middle of my windshield, says, never look below this. And I'm like, what? And you know what? Magically, I was so much more calm. My lines were better. Everything was better because I was looking as far ahead as I could. And now when you're approaching a red light, I see a red light three blocks away. I'm already slowing down. You watch the car in front of you, full bore. And about 10 feet before the light, they see it. And the rear of the car, you know, like hunches up in the back and they're yeah. skidding and you're like this guy just saw the light you should yeah. be driving two blocks ahead of yourself so like this is what this trains you're such a better driver and it's more nah, fun i totally agree and just again for the record i know you, you're not uh you do insurance and finance and all that kind of thing but you have nothing to do with the track stuff so can you recommend or is, is there like two three five or is there like a geico of track insurance or oh whatever? i don't i mean i've used a few different ones um to think of them there's you really have to just google it i mean there's a couple of companies who you just google hpde insurance and you'll find there's only a handful of them and okay they have different requirements and when it comes yeah i mean obviously i don't do any of this professionally uh, just for fun i mean track day organizers vary across the country so you really have to ask around and check some message boards and see who people like and, and you're gonna try some and you might not like them but yeah. yeah what about like track is it like pca or seca or like what, what do you I mean, the national ones is like NASA, there's PCA. PCA, I happen to like just because uh, – now, some PCA groups you have to have a Porsche and some you don't. But they run – most of them run a pretty professional event. And uh, and the people who are there are not like Yahoo's. Like, you know, they're usually a little more affluent because they have a Porsche and they're, they're – you know, they have to go to work tomorrow. So they're not like just balls out, like lay a crash, <laughs> or, you know, win or die kind of thing. And it's like yeah. – I mean, when I used to race bikes, like there were certain classes you didn't run in because they were all 16 and 18, and they don't have to be anywhere on Monday. And I'm like, no. So I chose my class with guys who were like, yeah, I don't want to die today. Yeah, that that's a good <laughs> idea. It's like that in in, uh, in sports. I play a lot of hockey, and it's like, I look around. I know, you know, you get into these fights. Hockey's crazy. You get into these fights, and people are like slamming into each other in a no check league. And I played checking forever. I played these high level whatever. And I look around, and it's midnight, and and on a Monday, and I'm like. Hey, bro, there's nobody in the stands. You're not getting the contract. You got to just dial it back a little bit because I got to get up in the morning kind of thing. <laughs> e easy, fella. Yeah, I'm telling you, man. I, it's so true. <laughs> that's Anyways. why, yeah, that's well. They always say, uh, you know, get, get get out of novice as fast as you can when you go to the track, right? Yeah. So, exactly. Well, I appreciate it once again. 
lots of good car knowledge and uh i don't know thanks for coming on we we got a lot more to talk about uh and uh i will talk to you soon all right good yep talk to you in a few minutes all right bye bye jonathan is the man um really appreciative of of him coming on and, and giving us a little knowledge about how insurance works with regards to uh, with regards to racing, but let's make the transition and go to Facebook. I'm feeling really bad because I can't keep up with all the emails, um, but I really appreciate it and I do t- try to take a look. And I'm going to get better and look at more of them, but uh, it's not out of it's not out of uh, you know hatred or something. It's out of the fact that I'm outside detailing cars and it's super hard to text while my gloves are on and I'm fingers are wet and all that kind of thing. So. Uh, thank you, thank you. Keep sending them. I eventually will get to them. But I've picked um, kind of a good good one here. I'm going to butcher the name, and I apologize. It's Jihoon Jiang. I, I would imagine not from the United States because the last line says, sorry for the bad English. Um, so I'm going to read it, and it's not exactly perfect English, but you're going to get the idea. So it says, hey, Larry, how you doing? I have some questions. A few months ago, a shop painted the quarter panel and the door, but they did not color match um, with the bumper. And then essentially he says they repainted with half of the bumper and the quarter panel blending job. And sometimes I can see the line between half the the door and half the bumper. So I went to the shop again and they just polished the rear bumper. It can, but I can still notice it in the sun. All right. So it's kind of actually mangled. I, uh, he's asking me, how can I fix it? Can I just polish it away? Whew, that's a tough one. So this is getting more into the body shop uh, industry. So let's let's step back a few steps and, and think about what it actually takes to, to do or to be a really good body guy. So you're going to have a car. I'm going to make a fictitious car here. So a 19, a 2000 XYZ, whatever car. So it comes in and it is a perfect blue. Now that 2000 car was painted, let's say in late 1999 or early 2000. And it is now 2013. So that is 13 years ago. And you don't know when it was, where it was painted, what the temperature was outside. Was it winter? Was it summer? Was it a different country where volatile chemicals are a little bit more freely used? Was it water-based? You have no idea what it is. So let's say you're going to repaint it now, today, 2013. How the heck are you supposed to gauge, you know, use the same products to mimic it? It's almost impossible. So... I am going to have to side a little bit on the body shop here, but what defines a really good body shop is a guy that can come in here and be like, okay, um, sort of, sort of, I don't, I'm trying to think how to say this right. Sort of like a really good detailer who comes in and says, all right, this is the year of the car. What are we trying to do? All these little factors, what we talked about before, and then goes in and, and actually does the job, meaning the surgery. In my case, it would be the polishing or the restoration, and the body shop guy would be actually the laying down of paint. So, I mean, there are skills, and it's very skillful actually doing that, but you actually want to pay for someone to figure out the before stuff. Remember I talked about that? Like, you know, not to blow through the paint or or blow through the clear coat, you know, for the detailer, or for the body shop guy. You want them to have the knowledge to say, you know, that what's the temperature outside? What's the barometer? What's the reducer that I'm going to use in here to try to mimic the best that I possibly can an entire, you know, and, and match the panel. So what they do, so if you have a little ding, that's why paintless dent removal is so amazing, but I digress. If you have a, a little something that can't be removed from paintless dent removal, you're going to put Bondo in it or Fixer or Welded or whatever you're going to do, and you're going to make it flat again, sand it down, and then you have to paint it. 
Now, the thing is, you don't just paint that little area where it's, you know, softball size or, um, you know, piece of paper size. You're going to have to paint the whole door or, or the whole panel or the whole hood or the whole roof because uh, it, it, it gets a little tricky with the blending aspects. So a lot of times you'll see them, they'll stop at a door frame where, you know, the line goes down. So they'll just do an entire door. And then so sort of what he's talking about is... What is he talking about? The bumper and the quarter panel. So whatever uh, the quarter panel got painted. So whatever is next to it, which is the bumper, he's saying looks different. Plus, bumper's probably plastic, which is another thing that's got to factor in. So these guys have to factor in like 50 things to try to mimic it, which is, I don't want to say impossible, but pretty damn close. It's, it's really hard to do. So when they do that one panel, it's better than doing, let's say, a tiny little spot where it's like, bang, your eye looks at it. And it's like, holy geez. You can clearly see that this has been repainted. So... Um, They'll also do a thing called blending where where they'll paint the – so let's say there's three panels, panel one, panel two, and panel three, and they're all side by side. And panel two, so one, two, three, the one in the middle, panel two, is completely repainted because there was a whatever, a ding, a scratch, or whatever in that car. Panel two was completely repainted. Panel one and panel three, a lot of times, guys, if they take the time to do it – and I'll explain another issue with body shops, um, which separates bad body shops from good body shops – what they'll do in a good body shop is they'll blend it, meaning they'll just do just a light little coat on one and a light little coat on three, on panel three, to kind of blend the eye in with number two. So it's not like shiny, you know, uh, deep, rich blue, then number two is a shiny blue, and then there's deep, rich again. Your eye, remember we talked about this in Drive Clean videos, the contrast? Your eye picks up all these things. That's what detailing is all about. It's manipulating the light. So because it's so hard and... Because you have to blend all these things, it's kind of a, it's kind of a pain in the butt to to repaint. And a lot of times, if you're doing show cars, um, that's why, especially when I'm with Bugatti or I'm doing um, a super crazy car that that's going into shows and whatnot, you can't really repaint the panel because then it looks goofy. And on a million dollar car, you you know, guys just say screw it, I got to repaint the whole thing again, which is not really logical. But neither is you know polishing a car for. Two weeks, but you get where I'm going with that. So if they don't take the time to blend uh, properly, that's the that's what he's going to see. But at the same time, it's also super hard. So I'm kind of I'm kind of wishy washy. Uh, maybe signing a little bit on with the body shot, but alluding, you know, going back to what I was alluding alluding to before, you know, bad body shops will spray real fast and they won't they won't do any blending, and it's just going to be what it's going to be, and they're not going to spend time because it's you know. Uh, it's just a you know a beater car or something of that nature. So when you go to the higher end body shops, when you walk in there, just make sure you say, hey, you know, I've had cars in the past and they may ha- and they haven't blended it enough, um, you know, and that sort of and it kind of whoop, light bulbs go off in, the, in that guy's mind and they go, okay, this is a this is an intelligent buyer, meaning customer. Um, let's make sure we go through all the steps instead of cut some corners so that we can save time, aka money. So. A lot of things like that are important. I know we talked about that in business when you're going to see a lawyer. You know, you don't just walk in and say, I don't know what I need. And they're going to drag their feet and take forever. I'm, I'm talking about a very few of them. I'm sure lots of them are great. But same thing. You have to be intelligent, whether it's a body shop, a lawyer, a carpenter, or a doctor. You don't just walk in and sit down and say, what do I need? No, you got you to gotta do some research and figure it out. So in, in this case, you're doing the research. You're listening to people who have been in this industry. So when you go in and say, hey, even if you haven't had it before, you say, I, you know, one of the things I hear is if, if they paint the door, is there any way that you can blend it? And, you know, that just kind of perks his interest and goes, Ooh, okay, this guy's going to be on top of his game. So um, to answer your question, how can you fix this? Uh, 
the only way he asked me in this email, should I wet sand or polish? You know, if they put like tons and tons of clear on it, which by the way, they probably haven't because body shops don't really do that unless it's a show car. Um, there's not a whole, there's not a whole lot you can do. I mean, I'd love to hear some other theories and I'm sure I'm not as well versed in, um, body shop as I am detailing. So I'd love to hear maybe from a body shop guy, but from my experience, it's very difficult to blend once it's painted. Once, once you've painted the canvas, it's painted the canvas. It, it is what it is. And you, you can do a little bit here and there, but short of that, you ha- you're going to have to repaint it or repaint the whole car or repaint the whole side of the car. It's just, you're sort of chasing after it, you know, time after time after time. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of an idea. I'm not necessarily sure. Sure. I gave you the brilliant answer, but more importantly, I gave you what I think is actually going on and some things that you need to think about when you do go to a body shop. Um, and what's kind of fun when you're doing, uh, a show car, what they'll do is they'll, uh, paint it or they'll, you know, I'm talking about prime it and do all the steps that they need to do. But once they, put a, a nice layer of, co- of wax on there. And it looks amazing. They'll put clear coat on and then they'll sand it down. I mean like beautiful glass, right? Perfect. And then they'll s- spray it again, let it sit, sand it down. And, uh, and I'm being very quick about this. And obviously they'll make sure it dries properly, which is a big thing. Cause remember when you're doing a beater car, we'll call it, they want it to paint it, you know, paint it. And sometimes people don't even sand it down, which is a little crazy. And they'll just throw it out the door. That's what they call turn and burn when you're at a dealership. A lot of dealership jobs because you you know they don't, you don't really make any whole lot of money doing a dealership job. You, you know, paint what you got to paint and get it out the door, and you go, let's go, let's go, let's go. When you're doing a when you're doing a um, you know a show car, you really take your time and you put lamps on it and let it you know let it sit and let it cure and let it gas the whole nine yards. Then you wet sand it down. Then you clear it again. Then you wet sand it down. Then you clear it again. Then you wet sand it down. And there's other theories where you, you don't even use uh, clear coat, you just stick with single stage. So there's all these different methods, but the point of the story is have a little, have a little forethought when you walk in, Hey, did they treat me like a show car? Am I paying for show car? I'm going to defend the body shops here. Are you paying for the time to do a show car? It takes a lot more time. Or did you pay for something that's ram bam? Thank you, ma'am. And you're out the door for, you know, two ninety nine job or whatever. Well, you know, you, you get what you pay for sometimes, but I'm not saying that to this gentleman here. I'm just trying to, I'm playing devil's advocate. So hopefully that helps. Uh, I appreciate all the Facebook, um, uh, all, all the Facebook, uh, notes and everything. And I'm getting to everybody as, as soon as possible. And, and it's great. So we are done for today. The next episode is going to be pretty cool. I'm going to try to grab, I'm not going to try to grab, I'm going to grab Mike Musto, whether he wants to or not. And we're going to talk about our trip to Pebble beach and all the things that went on and, so we'll talk a little bit more about Bugatti and what I actually did and restored. And we're going to go through the plugs. What are our plugs? We're going to... Where are my plugs? There it is. I just walked away. My plugs are TST, uh, Smoking Tire, Matt Farah, Zach Clapman. Those guys are amazing. I was on their podcast last week. We're going to talk a little bit about that too. Uh, if you wanted to hear it, um, I'm trying to think. It came out last Wednesday. Um, so download that and check it out. And we talk a little bit more about cars. If you are into, uh, more car things, uh, download Hooniverse. Those guys are the man, uh, are, uh, they're, they're super cool. Shout engine is where I do my podcasting from. If you want to get into podcasting, contact shout engine. Uh, Chris Hayes is the man. He, he's always on, uh, always picks up the phone. He's super cool. If you, if you ever want to talk about podcasting and how to do it, shoot me an email and I'll forward you off to him. MONYC.com, of course, is my website. Check out the Drive channel. We are in episode 9 or 10. We are all, we're, no, 
eight or nine and we're going up to 13 that's every wednesday at 9 a.m at youtube.com slash drive and of course my youtube channel uh youtube.com ammo nyc d-o-t-c-o-m is in dot com you can't you can't put the little dot you gotta spell it and of course facebook and now instagram i have tons and tons of followers on instagram which is ammo nyc so just search that and uh i can't think of anything else and i'm exhausted you guys are amazing. Hope to see you at a car show. If you ever see me walking around looking at cars, and I'm usually in a crazy zone, and I'm picking at things and looking at this or whatever, come by and say hello. Don't send me an email and say, hey, I saw you and didn't want to come over. What's the matter with you? Come over and say hi. I love chatting about cars, and I don't know. It's fun. This is this is a fun industry. This is a fun thing to do. Um, you know, we're not curing cancer here. We're playing with cars, so let's, let's enjoy it, and, and, you know, let's have fun. So... Once again, I will talk to you guys soon, and thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye.